Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Radical Reverend radio show and podcast. And if you're listening on radio, um, sadly, maybe gladly, you're listening a little after the fact to a phenomenal uh, demonstration that happened on Saturday. Um, if you're listening on podcast, you may have time to still make it. So we're going to talk all about that on the Radical Reverend show in the first half. But I'm just uh, so happy to have the Malton People's Movement on for the first half. We're just using first names, if you're listening out there in listener land, uh, because there's some genuine and grounded uh, concern about police retaliation. And that's, in fact, part of what this is all about. So, Wayne, I'm going to go to you first. Tell, tell us about the Malton People's Movement. You know, How did it start? What's it about? Why is it? Sure, I'll gladly give a little bit on, uh, you know, first of all, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a black man, I'm a Malton resident as well. And, you know, I, I remember uh, the day that we heard of like Ijaz dying and, you know, the very next morning, I was just completely heartbroken as a father myself, you know, so I, I came out, you know, and, you know, engaged in a demonstration and, you know, various of the Malton members community, you know, uh, came together, you know, in, in frustration over what happened to Ijaz. That's what I'm talking about, who passed away. You know, and that pretty much triggered the the blockade that occurred on, you know, uh, Morningstar and, and Goreway, where multiple Malton residents came together and to voice their frustration and outrage. It's like, how does an elderly man, which many people knew in the community as, you know, just a client and pleasant individual, you know, end up getting, getting shot? Um, you know what I mean? And that was the initial concern that brought members together, blocked off the road because we're, we were demonstrating demonstrating that hey you know we're not standing for this this is nonsense and we're not going to agree with it um you know and as we continued that that blockade for quite some time you know individuals got together and say hey you know what we we can't stop here we have to keep this fight going we can't be you know a group of individuals that just you know come together out of sensationalism and you know stop we have to keep this fight going and then from that you know people just got together held weekly meetings within Malton and formed a, a group. And that group is what later on got defined as the Malton's People's Movement. And when was that, just uh, to set this in history a little bit, like what was the date approximately um, that you got together? Uh, well, if we look at the dates, I, I would say the date right after Ijaz died, uh, I believe was on the 21st of June. Anybody correct me if I'm wrong. Now, as for a date as to when we officially be like, you know, went by the name of Montes People's Movement, or I'll say MPM for short, uh, I think that happened around the end of July, but don't quote me on that. And it wasn't just Aegis. I'm going to go to uh, UK at this point um, and, and, and talk about, it's not just Aegis, like talk about, uh, again, why you're involved and uh, what the concern is about policing and, and people of color and black uh, folk. I mean, talk about that. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, as, as my brother um, Wayne uh, described, this was really uh, an organic reaction in the community um, of Malton to the murder of this, um, this uncle, this, this figure in the community. And it was also happening in the context of a summer of uh, uh, and you know late spring of basically rebellions in the U.S. in response to George Floyd, but obviously in response to much more than that. And and in, in a lot of ways, MPM um, took that on as well, um, in the sense that this was a year 2020 um, that saw the most number of police killings uh, in Toronto and across Canada. And the Peel police in particular went on a killing spree that started actually even before the lockdown, before the new year with Clive Mensa, who they tasered to death, tasered him six times as he lay flat on the ground, complying with orders, you know, uh, on the porch of his, his home, the backyard of his own home. And he was basically, I mean, tasered, taser is a brand, right? He was electrocuted to death uh, by three heavily armed officers. Uh, that was in November uh, 2019. Um, we move forward to Jamal Francis. Um, 
somebody who was also very beloved uh, throughout Peel, a huge number of friends and family uh, and, and acquaintances and, and, and such. And he was shot uh, in the driveway of his own uh, family's home on his way to you know, uh, uh, visit another family member shot and uh and killed and uh, uh sorry shot and left in the front seat of his car to bleed out while several officers and 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 wayne and sarah jump in uh to correct me on any details but a large number of officers ducking behind their own vehicles because they were scared of this young black man who they had just peppered with bullets um and yet they were so scared of him even in his injured state, supposedly that they were they were ducking behind vehicles and letting him bleed out. And you know, we fast forward again to DeAndre Campbell, who was killed in the in the kitchen of his own family's home, of his own family's home, because he called the police because he needed help. He was going through a mental health crisis. He needed help, and again, reckless officers came in, tased him first, and then because one of the tasers malfunctioned and 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 even hit one of the other officers. That officer went ahead and 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 shot and murdered DeAndre in front of his whole family. And of course, then we fast forward to to Uncle Ijaz, um, which which uh, Wayne described. And um, we also had in that uh, year um, a sister by the name of Chantel, brother by the name of Mike, who were attacked but they survived. Chantel was shot on Mother's Day, just a month before Ijaz. Um, you know, uh, again on the doorstep of her own home. Uh, on Mother's Day for the crime of wanting to see her son. Uh, so this is the context in which it's happening is, is basically just a murder spree, killing spree by an aggressive police force, known, notorious, no deal peel. Everybody knows they're stacked with, like of all police forces, we can get into the nature of the police and maybe Sarah wants to um, you know, jump in in, some, uh, in terms of providing uh, some context to this and analysis, but um, just from a pure standpoint of, of humanity, um, people were fed up with that. And so there was a response in the streets of Malton. Um, and hopefully when people are hearing this, there's another response in the streets of Malton. So now the other violence. So they murdered all these people. And then the, the other people, and you know, in some ways, these people to me are worse than the police. The people in suits and ties, uh, you know, who sit behind offices and come in after the fact and cover up these murders. And so what we saw is one after the other, the special investigations unit, um, the unit, the supposed, you know, uh, independent body that's supposed to come in and investigate this and provide justice to these families um, provides, you know, cover up after cover up. The only officer they charged was the one who shot Chantel, Valerie Griffa. Um, but of course, they slapped her on the wrist and, and the other officer involved, uh, you know, didn't receive charges. And every single one of these other murders, the officers were cleared of all charges by this uh, investigation unit. And the director, uh, uh, Mr. Martino, you know, comes in and, and insults the families further by providing basically lengthy reports in which he insults the victims, justifies their killings, and basically says, you know, no matter how egregious, uh, there's a justification for it. So hopefully what people are seeing on the streets as this thing is airing is people responding to that as well. We see that as an extension of the same violence, the same bullets, it's, it's in these reports. That same traumatizing of communities and families, and we've had enough of it. And there's going to be resistance. There's going to be continued resistance um, until demands are met. And and maybe one of my my comrades can step into to talk about um, like analysis and and demands and and such that have come out of these these communities and that are coming from the families that have been fighting nonstop. People like Chantal survivors, you know, fighting nonstop despite you know the wounds, despite the missing the holes in their lives. They've been fighting. They've been resisting. Uh, you know, since. Yeah, thank you, Kay. Uh, so here on the Radical Reverend Show today, we've got the Malton People's Movement um, and several uh, folk from that movement. I'm going to go to Sarah now. So Sarah, uh, maybe you can add in around what uh, Wayne and Kay have already been talking about. I mean, there's just this reign of violence and police killings and uh, and really doesn't seem like a lot of accountability. So um, maybe talk to us from your perspective. Yeah, just to, to follow up on what Kay was saying, um, the SIU, the Special Investigations Unit, has cleared 97% of cases that they look at. Um, and even in these reports that have come back from Jamal's killing, killing from DeAndre Campbell's killing, and from Ajaz Chowdhury's killing, um, the director ha has conceded that things could have done better, that this was this was really... Um, 
you know, regrettable is their favorite term, but uh, the police could have acted differently. We know that there's things that need to be done and yet still no accountability. And also one of the, one of the huge issues is that we have no idea who these police are. So they've gone uh, scot-free and the families don't know their names. So they are very, they're very likely still in the streets that they were patrolling before. Um, so one of the major demands has been from the families have been to identify number one for their own safety of their own communities, um, to charge them with the crimes that they committed and to fire these police. There's a recent report um, from the Toronto Star about 120 police officers are sitting um, under some kind of disciplinary or they're having some investigations done on them and they're still paying, they're still being paid like over 100K being paid um, while they're waiting for some kind of decisions being made on their behavior. So, I mean, the the public has no faith anymore in the Special Investigations Unit. Uh, You know, the public also knows that much of that unit is stacked by former police officers or by people who have connections to law enforcement. So we just don't know how that could be considered any kind of um, uh, partial, right, an impartial assessment that's happening. So, you know, there's there's also conversations in the community that this has to be a civilian body. Civilians should be actually the ones who are um, reviewing these incidences and making judgments on them, not former police officers. Absolutely. Uh, talking into the uh, Molten People's Movement here, uh, big demonstration on Saturday. Uh, if you're listening to this on the on CIUT 89.5 FM, uh, it happened this past Saturday um, on pod- podcast. Uh, uh, you'll probably be hearing this uh, interview sooner. Either way, um, <laughs> the issues still stand. Um, and, and Sarah, before I let you go and go back to the others, um, what do you think is the answer here? I mean, you've got you know several voices that have weighed in. You, we saw that city council, for example, couldn't even get um, funding by 10%. Um, whereas, you know, certainly in, in some American jurisdictions gone a lot farther than that. Um, Black Lives Matter, for example, calling for 50% of funding, if not more. Um, uh, but then there's the voices that say, well, you know, really all we need is a better police chief, uh, uh, you know, civilian oversight, as you've just stated, uh, SIU change. What do you think? What's the answer here, Sarah? Well, you know, we're listening to the community and we're all, of course, part of the community. And we understand that uh, the violence in policing is not about any kind of reform that could happen. Policing was founded from um, slave catchers. The whole institution was about catching racialized people who were not where they were supposed to be. Um, And you see remnants and and predominantly that is what it does is the protection of um, the upper class and their property. Right. And we see we, we see all the research. We don't even need more studies to understand that the most impacted and the most uh, the violence happens to black, indigenous and then racialized communities through policing. So no amount of diversity training is going to help the institution of policing. And we saw this happen in the state capital in the U.S., where we know that police can make a choice. When they want to be, uh, when they want to show restraint, they can. But time and time again, what we've seen is Peel is they in Peel is that they choose violence every time they go into these interactions. Um, the police chief has said a lot of lovely words about how he is interested in in reforming, and yet he can't even concede to some of the most basic um, demands of the families. And this is true of politicians as well. So, you know, one really simple thing is some compensation. So um, it, it, uh, Brother Ajaz's family was actually living, is still living in the same apartment uh, that was riddled with bullet holes, um, extremely traumatic to his children. Those bullet holes, the police shot it up and walked away. Nobody repaired that wall except for community that came in to repair it and and paint those walls. Um, there's been no compensation for Chantal, who is still suffering from her injuries. She is now expecting. This is something that um, the, the 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 state has the money to take care of. This is not like a big drawn out process where we have to go into some kind of legislature and change change laws in the books. Like they can do this right now, uh, and they choose not to. So I think that if we are going to have any trust, even in our politicians, we need to see them put their money where their mouths are and stop with the lip service about how much they care about communities. We've also learned, we know research now, decades old from the abolition movement, is that crime um, 
is caused, you know, people unfortunately have to make choices of survival. So sometimes it's theft. Sometimes there's things that happen that people need to do to survive. And we know that actually the solutions to these are better funding. When people have education, when they have access to good jobs, when they have access to affordable housing, um, communities thrive. So police forces actually do not bring safety. They bring more violence. There's tons of research out there done to prove this already. And we just don't know why our politicians are not um, following suit. So Wayne, I'm going to go to you. Um, One of the calls is that uh, for mental health calls, that those uh, be a, a special unit that's not police, that are mental health care professionals that go out. Um, There have been pilot projects done around this uh, and are still ongoing. Um, Is that a possible solution or is that just another Band-Aid, Wayne? Well, that's where it goes back to what you asked my, my sister Sarah is, you know, what's the answer? And I think that, you know, in order to come across the answer, you have to come across what is not the solution. Now, when you look at the institutions like the SIU, for example, it's like, you know, they were designed to increase public confidence. Has any of the cases that have been investigated by them demonstrated that from, you know, Matt D. Giovanni, a fellow, you know, um, Malton resident that was also taped by police, similar to like how Clive was who passed away. Like that's, they're not doing anything to instill public confidence. And I think that at this stage in the game, there is nothing that can be done or should be done by government or public in any of their institutions or agencies to help to help address any of the, of the community's conflicts. So do I think that the mobile crisis team is gonna, you know, somehow do something that's gonna be miraculous in a way that reduces any sort of wrongful conduct from happening? No, I ultimately do not. I ultimately think that if there is gonna be any issues that's gonna be addressed um, by the community, if there's any sort of socioeconomic issues that are occurring within the community, the people that have to address that ought to be members of that community. Because what we're seeing is time and time again, which is it'll be foolish, if not naive, to think that throughout all these generations, throughout all these years, aside from when you know slavery was first you know, adopted to present day where racism, sexism, and various other discriminatory practices are still in play, despite we knowing the reality of their existence as clear as we know that the sun rises the next day. And we still are going to place trust in government, politicians, et cetera, into addressing these conflicts, despite the many opportunities and the plethora of, of uh, resources they try to deploy to solve them. Do, are we going to be, as Einstein once said, you know, do the same thing over and over again and expect the same result? No. A different result? No. I think that it will be insane for anybody to believe that the mobile crisis team is a possible solution because at the end of the day, it's an it's a, it's a arm what stems from a systemic racist system that will never change because it's designed to operate exactly as it should do, which is to harm various members of, of color. Because if we look at all the people that were attacked from what my what my brother was mentioning earlier, you know, from you know, we see black people are largely targeted as we we know that, you know, black people are disappropriately targeted wrongfully for not just, you know, wrongful conduct, but excessive force to, you know, brown members, you know what I mean? And even to, you know, uh, other non uh, people of color, you know, we're seeing that this situation is just going to keep occurring. Um, So no, to answer, that was my long answer to saying is that, no, I do not expect any hopeful thing coming from the mobile crisis team that's being deployed. Okay, just before I leave you though, Wayne, I want to, you know, people will say, well, you know, we had a black police chief coming from the community. We've had in in some American places, the vast majority of the police force are uh, people of color, black black folk uh, came from the community. So that's not a solution? (laughs) I I have so many things to say, none of which I think I could say on, on this without being blurred out. But um, <laughs> no, I do not think that the salute that's a solution at all. In fact, I think that you know what they're demonstrating to me is more concerning. You have these members that are you know that ought to reflect who we are, which is supposed to aspire us to you know be 
you know, to trust our institutions more. It always goes back to that trust in the public institution. So yeah, these people are just figures to just be placed there um, in order to build this fake trust, this fake confidence in a system that ultimately harms us. Because, you know, let, let's be real. Chantal Crooker was the only lady that survived every that that survived out of all the cases since 2019 to present. She is the only person that had any sort of charges being laid. And look at the charges that were laid. What these police chiefs, what these mayors, what the SIU is saying is nothing at all to instill public confidence. Everything to say, hey, police officers, if you're going to deploy your weapons and if you're going to do something harmful, you better make sure you kill that person because that's the only way you're going to get off. Look at the situations that occurred. Every person that died, none of them got justice. None of them. Only one. And that was the only fortunate lady that managed to survive. So that's where it goes back to your question is I think the messages that they're giving is you know, having these, you know, puppets, and I, I will call them that, or, you know, traditionally what we'll call them as Uncle Tom's being in these situations. No, they're not, they're not doing nothing. They're fake. And I will, I will always say that to them. So Kay, I'm going to go to you. So what's the answer here? What are you calling for? Uh, other than, I mean, Sarah was talking about compensation, of course. I mean, this is a kind of, uh, kind of absolutely bottom line uh, demand. But, um, but you know, ultimately, what what do we need? Like, you know, what do we need? And uh, and and speak a little bit to people, some people's fears, because when you talk about abolishing the police force or even defunding it by fifty percent, um, people kind of get nervous, right? So maybe you can speak to that. What is the solution here? Okay. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think we can go to specific demands, and certainly we're an organization that believes uh, in defunding the police and then reinvesting that money in communities. We just saw Peel uh, Regional Council pass a ridiculous uh, a budget, you know, in the face of the pandemic, in the face of everything that's going on, they passed the budget that gives 40% of tax dollars to the police. For new, brand new equipment, uh, you know, uh, the drones that we've been seeing circulating Malton uh, uh, in recent days, I'm assuming is, you know, coming from that budget. And so we're an organization that believes in that. Um, but uh, we're an organization that, as uh, Sarah mentioned, believes that the SIU should be abolished and replaced by civilian committees. We're an organization that believes that the families demands of IDs of officers, that officers uh, be uh, immediately removed from the force, that officers immediately be jailed, that we believe in those demands. But in terms of the solution, I think the solution is what we've been seeing Already, um, a year, you know, almost a year ago, when Ijaz, Uncle Ijaz was murdered, and hopefully, what we're going to be seeing again now, which is the community coming together and organizing, and the community actually saying, "Hey, whether it's questions of crime, whether it's questions of divisions and problems within the community, if we are given the resources, if we're organized, we can solve these problems ten times better than the foreigners, than the foreign occupation force." that is in the form of the Peel police in these communities. And so we want to see, um, in terms of the solution, it's um, communities and the people that are most affected by these issues of poverty, of crime, of violence, organizing, coming together, and defending each other. It's neighborhoods like Malton um, doing that and uh, you know, seizing back control of their resources. And so, you know, that's something we're seeing as well. Uh, speaking to members of the Malton uh, People's Movement, uh, again, big demonstration this past Saturday uh, to demand uh, exactly what you just heard Kay outline. Um, I'm going to go back to Wayne. Wayne, you wanted to jump in here. Yes, that's correct. Because I did want to give something, you know, speaking to, you know, groups or community organizations that operates in a similar context as Malton People's Movement, a group that's 100% grassroots, 100% community owned. When we talk about a solution, I must say that, you know, we've been active for, you know, going on a year. We have no sign of slowing down. So, you know, to bring it back to what you're saying about when people get so scared of, the, you know, abolition of, of the police or the SIU, you know, you just tell them to slow down and say, hey, look at it like a process. All right. It's not something that's going to be happening the next day. It's something that we build up to. Right. When we talk about reinvesting that money into our communities, all the people that are from the MPA, we're not no rich people. We're people that are dedicating our extra time that's maintaining our own families, maintaining our own lives and just dedicating every free time that we have to fight for justice. Now, imagine what we could be doing 
if we're able to get some of that money that Peel Police is getting, that people could actually quit their jobs and dedicate themselves 100% towards co like helping their community. I don't see why members like the Malton People's Movement can't deserve some of that funding to get ourselves trained, to get ourselves educated to address mental health calls, right? That's, that's the way where we start to lead into having the police or whatever deployment agencies that the government wants to utilize to slowly have them ineffective. And then that will lead to their abolishment. Why? Because now we're having community members and leaders that have to come forward in the community. That's what MPM is. We're leaders in our community that are coming forward and we're saying, hey, we're willing to dedicate the time and effort to encourage this change. But yes, we need the support. We need the funding as well to maintain our existence. And I do think that as more groups and as more members in the community come forward to do those kind of help within their community, we will rely on the police less. We rely on politicians less. We rely on the judicial systems less. We rely on various of these, these racial systemic institutions a lot less that will ultimately lead to their abolishment. So that's the part that I wanted to add on to is just people just need to stop looking at abolishment as a, as a one-shot thing. Like, no, it's a process that ultimately gets uh, led into, but it does incorporate the reallocation of funding. It does incorporate community groups and leaders coming forward, and it does incorporate to the ultimate extinction of various uh, uh, institutions such as the police force. That's what I wanted to, to mention. Okay, I, I uh, unfortunately ran out of time. We could have gone on for an hour. Um, maybe another time we, we will. Uh, Malton Pe uh, People's Movement at gmail.com if you're interested. Uh, if this, uh, if you hear this before Saturday, uh, do show up. It will be a safe demonstration uh, and, you know, fulfill all of that, the requisites there. Um, and uh, you can find out more about it at the Malton People's Movement. Uh, if uh, you're hearing this on the radio and uh, the demonstration has already happened, please get involved. Involved, particularly if you're from this community. Um, this is, of course, the very best defense for everyone. I want to thank uh, both Wayne and Kay and Sarah for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Until next time, take care and get involved. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show, and please just keep that in mind. You'll be hearing this, of course, on Monday if you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, but if you're hearing it on podcast, you should be getting it a little later on Friday. That is before the demonstration happens on Saturday. So Saturday, demonstration, 1 p.m. Uh, find out all the details at Molten People's Movement. Uh, be there if you can be. Uh, it will be held safely. And of course, uh, this is about the cop killings that just seem to keep on coming in, uh, in Peel region, but not just in Peel region, right across the GTA. So uh, I'm going to segue now into our left, left or left panel. And uh, no strangers to the show, we've got uh, David Slavic, who is uh, a self-described recovering DC political consultant and also host of his own pod podcast, The Popular Show. And Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back magazine and also, of course, involved uh, with Fight Back, the organization, uh, Marxist.ca. So welcome both to uh, The Radical Reverend Show. Hey, Sherry. It's a pleasure. Great to have you both back. So we're going to jump right in on, on the police issue. Um, so as you both know, uh, in Toronto, uh, City Council tried to defund in the, in the height of the, uh, of the demonstrations for Black Lives Matter some months back, uh, tried to defund the police by 10% and didn't get that through. In fact, City Council ended up giving the police more money for body cameras. Um, and the Ontario government, of course, has given more money to the police since they've been elected as well. So we seem, uh, in this jurisdiction anyway, to be countering the trend of defunding the police, in fact, going in the opposite direction. Um, so Alex, I'm going to like, start with you. I, why? What? You know? And, and also, um, let's start talking about, you know, reform versus abolition. Alex. Yeah. Well... You're seeing this big contradiction between opinions in the population, which is increasingly understanding 
the reactionary role of the police and the actions of politicians, of capitalist politicians in capitalist parliaments, because capitalism needs the police. Capitalism needs the police. But yeah, people are seeing sort of like disgusting events like in the United States, like in Malton, um, the, and the impunity of the police. Actually, I, I recently read a story about Toronto police were caught lying under oath about planting drugs on uh, on on a um, uh, somebody they arrested, and and they did so in the most comic manner that they deliberately searched for this guy and did an illegal search of his car, and then they planted. $50,000 worth of heroin on his dashboard and said that was the uh, the justification for their illegal search. Like like this guy would just leave $50,000 of heroin lying around. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 they were just found to be lying. And, uh, and that's typical. And more and more people are seeing that. In fact, they're complaining there's a crisis of morale amongst the police because they're not being able to get away with lying anymore. I'll let uh, David speak, but before I get into reform versus abolition. I just wanted, so it's it's really interesting that this, uh, so this $50,000, this was in Peterborough, and this was uh, of what they call blue heroin. Blue heroin is uh, uh, a new drug that's hit the street that's essentially fentanyl with some sort of, uh, it's escalatam, I think, or it's, I can't pronounce it right, but it's a, it's a, a, a benzopodiapine as well. And it's, it's very dangerous, right? But it's uh, it's interesting that they that they use this sort of new drug as the this new sort of hot and dangerous drug to you know justify that because it really does justify these new scares always do justify new police powers and new police funding so it it's really almost symbolic that they use this particular drug in this instance. We were just going to get into the abolition versus reform because, you know, I mean, you know, we had a black police chief, I mean, certainly in the United States. And uh, David, when I get back to you, you can weigh in on this. But, you know, a lot of the police forces in the, in the big city centers are mostly, you know, uh, African-American. Um, uh, and uh, and so we've got that. Um uh, we are, you know, certainly as some jurisdictions in the states have been looking at, you know, peeling away mental health calls. I mean, there's a pilot project even in Toronto on that. Um, will any of this work, Alex? Well, yes and no, in a way uh, that not, no, it won't work. But yes, uh, I, I do support anybody fighting for uh, moving services away from police that to de-police uh, mental health calls and, and, and other such uh, a crisis response. And people fighting for that, and the people in Malton absolutely fighting against police violence, that you've got to build a movement in that. But at the end of the day, the police defend capitalism. You know, they say property is nine-tenths of the law. That means that 90% of policing is defending those with property against those with none. And that's what policing is. It doesn't matter if you have black police chiefs or black police officers, you have all of the sort of uh, anti-racism training in the world. It's not going to change the nature of the institution. And, and that's why the, the movement to uh, defund, abolish police really needs to understand, it's not just abolish police, it's abolish capitalism. And, and then build a society where we don't need this police that is uh, defending those of property from the majority of the population. And, and so, so really, I'd like to put in an anti-capitalist perspective. You can't just say abolish police on its own without seeing the social question. Uh, and just before I go to David, I mean, you know, we, we look at the kind of etiology of the police. Police forces both uh, on both sides of the border, you know, uh, catching runaway slaves south of the border and, and mm -hmm. up here too. Um, but more to the point, the RCMP being set up uh, really to police indigenous. Um, that's That that was their original role. Um, so David, abolish or reform? Any of this going to work? I was on this show not too long ago with my good friend, Andre Demise. And uh, I always find myself the incrementalist on this show. Now I, I am actually for abolishing the police. I think that it, in the long run, I think it's the way to go. I think that, um, 
prisons need to be abolished. I think that we need to, to reform how we think about ourselves as a people and how we treat each other, even those who may be acting what we call out of the order. Uh, but we we do need to, to do those steps in, in time. Um, I think what you're getting at is correct, that systematically police will always be required in a capitalist system. As we move towards a like an ever increasing socialist or social democracy, I think we, we could actually make those things happen uh, more quickly. So it's you could abolish the police more quickly as you abolish capitalism more quickly. Well, agreement. Wonderful. Um, so, uh, so another piece of news, um, and, and, and you know, I'll be up front with you out there uh, in listener land. We were talking to David Slavik here and Alex Grant, both no strangers to the Radical Reverend Show um, on our Left, Left, or Leftist panel here today. Um, and uh, you know, Prince Philip just died, and we were going to talk about, you know, talking about abolition, um, ab- abolishing the crown, and then it fe- felt kind of uh, weird, like, because, you know... Uh, you know, here's a death, here's a person, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, to the, to, to that, David uh, jumped in and said, perfect time to talk about abolishing the crown. Uh, so, so David, take it away. Uh, let's so, talk about the crown. I, I think it's very, it's interesting. Um, I, I sort of straddle many worlds here. I, I'm on a, 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 a podcast called The Popular Show with, with two uh, great English professors from uh, Royal Holloway University. Um, I'm an American living in Canada. I'm living in Newfoundland, which is has a newer, uh, even sort of uh, more recent colonial roots. So, you know, we, I kind of feel the, the crown sort of around me, both of my, my children are subjects to the queen, if you will. Um, and I, I think one of the interesting things about Canada is that in some ways, and this is a good friend of mine, Andrew Young, who's uh, a PhD student at University of Toronto, he believes in uh, sort of a, a, a Hegelian sense that Canada is more of a country than the United States because it has a queen and it can vest its power into queen in some way. It provides a legitimacy. I think that we can move away from that. I think the people are the legitimacy. I think that the the First Nations are the legitimacy. I think the land is legitimacy. Um, and I, I think we should we should move into the 21st century and, and abolish the crown. Alex, you are a Brit. <laughs> yes. Weigh in. Uh, well, Let's look at this. There is this reticence to talk about abolishing the monarchy when Prince Philip has died. But the reality is, one is a political constitutional question and the other is a personal issue. And the two should not be related. And people's emotions are being manipulated because of that. So, like, oh, no, you can't talk about these questions because a, a man died. And, and, and we've got wall-to-wall coverage on the CBC. So like monarchy, 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 great man, great man, all uh, public service, all the rest of it. Um, and, and, and maybe, you know, I, I could tell a lot of stories about Prince Philip, but I'm going to talk about the institution. That the reality is this is a racist colonial institution. It all came out with uh, Meghan Markle and, and it isn't unimportant. The majority of Canadians oppose the monarchy. But they oppose the monarchy in kind of a laid back, so like, well, I don't see the purpose kind of way. And the reality is, it's actually really, really important. It's really important because elections, you think that elections decide the government. They don't. The party that gets the most seats then goes to the representative of the queen and asks, can I form a government? And it is entirely constitutional for the governor general in Canada or the queen in Britain to say no. Yeah, I have to, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and say, well, you know, it's at this point, it's just a formality. Um, you know, they, they don't really do anything about it. Uh, you know, they respect the will of the people. I watched the crown, you know, I saw someone who seemed to respect the will of the people, despite having differences. What do you say to that? It happened in Australia in the 1970s. Yeah. So if you had... Well, the CIA a, was involved with that, too, actually. Of course. <laughs> of course. And actually, there's a, very, there's a great movie called A Very British Coup uh, that outlines a process of how this could happen, of a, a real socialist Labour Party leader. Yeah. Uh, the story about that and how, how the monarchy just uh, undermined it. It's an important part of the capitalist establishment. It's like a last 
bastion against socialism. And that's why it is very politically important to eradicate the monarchy. Mm-hmm. So, because otherwise you could win an election, you know, uh, Sherry Novo, uh, Nikki Ashton, uh, and myself <laughs> in an NDP socialist cabinet. Dream. Right? Uh, win, win election democratically, and then we and then we move uh, the nationalisation of the commanding heights of the economy. And the governor general says, "No, um, you're all fired, and and I'm going to get um, you know uh, Bob Ray to, to to lead things all over again." You know, <laughs> and then and then she throws a stapler at you. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't the monarchy just entertainment, really? I mean, look at the money that it makes. I, I mean, I think, the, you know, the argument that I've heard is, look at the money it brings into Britain. I mean, everybody's just fascinated. Like, it's just, it's kind of Hollywood. Isn't it just Hollywood? Now, I, yes, um, you're, you've made good points, Alex, but to David's point, I mean, really, would they really ever do that? And would if they tried to, would anybody take them seriously? Because they know that that would be the end of the monarchy. I doubt that they would actually do that um i don't i don't know i mean i'm i I came from a kind of a you know fabian socialist english background on my mother's side and my grandmother would still insist that we listen to the queen's address on christmas day and she would say things like what a lovely woman you know i mean like even though she considered herself a socialist is so bizarre um but i mean there's this fascination isn't it just hollywood (laughs) no no it it is a last bastion of support for the establishment and of course and that is why the royalty needs to stay out of politics so that it can be seen as this magical thing like badge hot uh, who wrote the sort of definitive work on the royalty is that you sh- says that you shouldn't look too closely at the magic right uh, but it is the last bastion of the establishment and is used against socialists like jeremy corbyn was attacked for not being sufficiently royalist enough, mm. for not uh, uh, ducking and bowing and curtsying and uh, and doing all of the obsequious uh, stuff to the royalty, because it's politically very important, uh, and and that is a warning to us in Canada that the, the, this the soldiers they don't uh, pledge allegiance to Canada. They don't apply to allegiance to the country, the people, the constitution. No, it's the queen. And 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 this could be used in a coup, an entirely constitutional coup. Yeah, I mean they they don't say her Canadian service on the side. You know, exactly. I mean they say her Majesty's service. It's true, and uh, that that does have a uh, an impact. I think you know. I think like the interesting thing is. Um, I was listening not too long ago. There was a discussion after the uh, royal interview with Oprah, and there was a call-in show. It was Ian, Ian Hannah Mansing's show on, on CBC. And it was very fascinating to see who called in in support of the monarchy and who didn't. I was shocked that many people who are new immigrants to Canada, who are former colonial subjects, like from India and, and from the Caribbean, were far more supportive of at least the callers. This is a representative sample. You know, these are the yeah. people who call in. Well, the Barbados just removed them. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But it was very fascinating to see this sort of strange Canadian politics arise because new, and I'm a new immigrant to, to Canada. And I'm very proud to be here. I, I'm actually probably more gung-ho Canadian than anyone here. But <laughs> but uh, what, what I would say is that I thought it was fascinating to see that because it was something that they had identified as part of being Canadian. Another thing I saw, and this was less endearing, was I saw young people call in and say, but we couldn't. That's how our constitution is based. And I thought, what are we doing to our kids that they think you can't do it? Yeah. Odd. Okay. Well, uh, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show if you've just tuned in on podcast or on the radio. And uh, we have our left, left, or leftist panel today, David Slavic, Alex Grant. Um, and as you heard, just talking about the crown. Let's let's shift a little here. Um, today in Ontario, and David, you are, you don't like, you're just, you're off there in Newfoundland, you lucky person. Uh, today in Ontario, 4,277 
cases, new cases of COVID. We've been averaging around the 3,000 mark. This is just outrageous. Um, uh, third wave, you know, in, in neon here. Um, uh, you know, our, our ICUs, our ERs are filled with COVID patients. They're they're shifting them all over the province. Our schools are dangerous. Some 1,569 schools shut down. Um, uh, and, and, and so here, here we have a government that can't admit that they've failed. Doug Ford's um, uh, this blame to go around there. Um, you know what? Sh- I guess this is a shoulda coulda game. But but Alex, I'm going to go to you. What shoulda happened? What you know? Why are we here? This is totally scandalous and totally predictable. All of the scientists were saying when when uh, the we reopened a month or so ago that oh now you create you're making a third wave wave inevitable. And the government was just going profits, 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 and no paid sick leave. Profits, profits, and, and you saw horrendous what seven hundred cases at the Amazon warehouse. Uh, the bus driver who drove those workers to and from the Amazon warehouse, he died. Right, so that there's nurses dying. The new variants are killing people much younger now much sicker, much younger uh, workers, and the overwhelming majority of outbreaks are in workplaces. That is on the government and that is on corporate profiteering. And it, it, this is scandalous. And, uh, and, we, and we need, you know, uh, we really do need to rise up against this government and, uh, uh, and, and make sure that uh, the unions and workers take control over health and safety because the corporations, the government don't care. Okay, so I, just before I go to David, and, I, and I'm going to, um, uh, so I, I've had unionists on the show who say, because I've asked them, so you know, when, if this isn't the case for a general strike or major strikes, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, and the answer is, well, we're not in a legal strike position, and the government could find, could actually put some unions out of business, could actually take them to the courts mm-hmm. and just like bankrupt them. Um, so I'll go to David first. Um, like, so the unions are feeling kind of hamstrung here. Um, uh, it, but, you know, what, you know, what should it could have? Yeah, I think I think the thing that we should have done is that is week two, uh, you know, I think that week one, we, we still were figuring it out, you know, this is last March. And but week two, we saw those case rates go up, we should have said, hey, we're gonna pay everybody to stay home, we're gonna pay the businesses to shut down, we're gonna, we're just gonna take rent off for a, a month you know, just to keep keep things going. It would have been an easy fix. That wouldn't have cost all of the, the tax revenue that it's cost over the course of the year. This this stopping and starting, uh, it's really interesting because, you know, as someone who is is definitely with social leadings, I'm finding myself very sympathetic to businesses here it, because especially small businesses. And Toronto is full of thriving, wonderful small businesses run by people who come had come to this country to do something, to, to enjoy their community, to build their community. And I think about all the times they stopped and started different rules, setting up patios, not being able to use patios, all these sorts of things. And you you think for a, a, a premier who's supposed to be business friendly, that he could have just made a tough choice and said, okay, we're going to make this work from the beginning. We're going to shut this down and work, and work through it. There's been none of that. There's been no supports for businesses. The 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 rules have been off and on. I have talked to tens of people in Ontario who have no idea what's closed, what's not closed. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly he's big business oriented, I would say. So you had this kind of weird, uh, you know, big box stores open uh, while small uh, businesses, you know, your mom and pop stores couldn't. I mean, this this was outrageous. And, and clearly, um, you know, you want to look at the donations to the Conservative Party and just see who won, who lost, yeah, it would be pretty yeah. uh, you know, apparent, I think, by just doing that. Um, Alex, what about the, the role of small business, though? I'm in favor of giving small business a break from big business. Yeah. That there should be rent forgiveness. There should be an evictions ban, right? There should be you know, things that help small business out from the top down. But at the same time, I don't want small businesses then uh, exploiting downwards and, and beating up on their own workers, right? So I'm in favor of giving them a break from the top down, but... Uh, 
workers need to be supported too. And and, and I care more about workers than I care about uh, business uh, of any kind. Uh, As you get, get back to the question about unions, there's really a failure of imagination here. So, all right. So you can't, you know, I, I sometimes get accused by uh, uh, more you know, moderate trade union leaders of sort of, oh, you think you can organize a general strike by just clicking your fingers? And of course, no, but there are waves of work refusals. And the actions of the union leaders has, hasn't been to support and encourage those work refusals. It has been to discourage and sheepdog those workers back into unsafe workplaces. So every worker's got the right to refuse unsafe work. And if the unions were doing a campaign of refuse, refuse, if you feel unsafe, you have a right to refuse. The whole system would be paralyzed very quickly, but it's a political campaign. It is a political campaign of political encouragement. Like, um, and, and you could have waves of it. Like I, actually, I've got a, a friend who is a bus driver who refused unsafe work just uh, yesterday. And then of course, uh, Ministry of Labor said, no, it's perfectly safe, even though people have died. And, but it shouldn't just be individuals. We should be encouraged, everybody. And I think the teachers, uh, well, I think the teachers were at the forefront of making Peel uh, shutting down the Peel schools and putting the pressure there and, and then subsequently in Toronto. So that pressure can matter and that political lead matters. Yeah, it's just uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I but I always think this is, you know, well, they might sue us out of existence. I think about the beginning of unions when they were illegal and just going out on strike got everybody arrested. Somehow they still did it. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, we wouldn't have unions if they didn't stand up uh, to legality. You know, so I mean, I, I yeah, it, it, there's there's something very wrong here. Um, I'm certainly hearing from teachers all the time on my Twitter feed who are terrified and frightened to speak out. And I keep telling them you can. But but yeah, again, um, where's the union backing them up um, in this. Uh, okay, uh, well, listen, it's that time. I'm going to have to call it. Um, thank you so much. Been very fast and furious. Uh, left, left, or leftist. We've been talking to David Slavic, been talking to Alex Grant, and I look forward to having you on uh, again next month. Um, and we'll discuss uh, what the topics of the day are then on the Radical Reverend. And to you out there in listener land, please uh, keep your comments coming. I always respond, uh, always interested in what you have to say. And uh, yeah, be safe out there. Take care. Mm.